The thing that's marvelous about work is that it's so dynamic. It's ever-changing. The people we work with go through their own changes. Um, they grow or they leave or they uh, go through their own challenges or the customers change or the market conditions change or, or business size change or capital structure change. Everything is constantly in this dynamic motion, very lively. And because of that, we're presented with this opportunity to realign and realign and realign and realign again and again and again and again. And I think that that is the, uh, that's the opportunity. And every single one of those alignments presents us with an opportunity to check ourselves. And so we can ask some of the questions I ask are things like, what do I believe to be true about the world? Uh, what kind of company do I want to work for? Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. We're sharing with you a special episode today. And in this one, Jerry will be answering instead of asking the questions. We're doing this in celebration of the release of his book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up, which is fantastic, by the way. And I wanted to take this opportunity to share my own Jerry story and how I ultimately came to meet him and work with him. Well, I want to become a better entrepreneur, I told him, sitting on his plush couch, the trickle of the water flowing behind him from his Zen fountain, which was soothing the room. My eyes scanned the wall behind him, which was filled with the many glowing articles about his career success. One of the finest investors of the time, and there I was, sitting with the man himself, right in front of me. He smiled, leaned back in his chair, considered my question, and said, Well, tell me about your parents. I didn't go to New York looking for a coach or a therapist or a fix. I went because I needed a change, a chance to challenge myself and meet others who might challenge me. But I told everyone I went because I wanted to go for the big time. I wanted to be successful. I had experienced a bit of the thrill of entrepreneurship in my time in Ohio, so I thought I would do it bigger in New York. But deep down, I was truly lost. My mom had just died after a battle with breast cancer, and despite moments of tremendous grief, I had convinced myself I was over it. I was moving on. Now, I'm sure anyone but me could tell how lost I was. I'm certain a guy like Jerry could see it right away. When I moved to New York, I jumped into everything I could, meeting everyone I could, attending any event I could find. And one of the events I went to was an angel investor panel where Jerry was actually on the panel. And I don't remember what he said on that panel. I don't remember what stood out about him, though I do remember him mentioning that he was doing less investing and more focusing on mentoring, teaching, and coaching. I don't even know what a coach was, but I felt like I had to speak with him. But unfortunately, after the event, he was mobbed, as he often is, and I didn't connect with him, but I did a good Google search when I went home for Jerry Colonna, board member, coach, and I just happened to find somebody who had written a blog post about the work they had done with him, and I reached out to that person who connected me to Jerry. As I sit here today, 12 years later, I can without a doubt say that was one of the most important moments of my life. With Jerry's coaching, support, guidance, and teaching, I truly am a better man, a better partner, a better father, 
because of the time I spent with Jerry. When I was learning to ride a bike, I remember being so angry with my mother. Just tell me how to balance, I used to shout at her. And I could only imagine what that was like for her. Caring so much for me and just wanting to fix it for me. But all she could do is reflect the reality back to me. She would never be able to tell me how to do it. I had to fall, get back up, fall, get back up, until I felt it for myself. And that's how my coaching experience was with Jerry. He never told me what to do. He was just there alongside me, supporting me when I was trying and making sure I was okay after a fall. He made sure that I understood that falling was not just another proof point in my brokenness. It was a proof point of my aliveness. He showed me that compassion for myself didn't need to be earned through some external event. It was something I was entitled to as part of my humanity. He showed me that even and perhaps especially the more challenging moments we face in our work, in our lives, in our relationships, are moments where we can truly grow as people, as humans. And he shared his own stories of falling and failing, his own stories of success. And through that time, he never told me how to balance like I was asking him to. But I did learn through him that the key to balancing is not to look to avoid falls, but to know you can get back up from falls. Now, I think back to that first meeting and often find myself filled with gratitude and a sense of indebtedness. What if Jerry had not answered my email? What if he was too full to take me as a client? What would my life look like now? The indebtedness and gratitude has driven me to where I am today to support the Scaling Jerry experiment that is now part of Reboot, to create a container where hopefully the next 24-year-old Dan and anyone lost and in pain can find the support they need so badly, whether that be with Jerry or not. And I'm thrilled too that now so many more people will get to connect with the wisdom, the love, the compassion, and the brilliance that is Jerry through our company Reboot and now through his book, Reboot. The funny thing I can see is I think back to that first meeting in my journey since. He did actually make me a better entrepreneur, but I'm even more grateful that he helped me become a better man, a better adult. So it's truly my privilege to introduce you all to a man who meant and means so much to me, a man that has impacted my life and my kids' lives more than he ever might realize, a man you already know as Jerry the coach and teacher. And now I present to you all today as a published author, Jerry Colonna. Enjoy. Hi, this is Jerry Colonna. Thanks for listening to the Reboot Podcast. Check out my book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. I hope it really moves you. We're here today to talk about Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. Um, When did you first feel the desire to write this book? I think the way to think about that question is, um, when, can I answer it this way? When did I first think about writing a book? Mm -hmm. When I was about four. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I joke, but not really. Um, in so many ways, I feel like I've been collecting stories all of my life. You know, in the book, I talk about the fact that I began journaling at around age 13 in pretty much every day of my life. I'm now 55. Every day of my life since then, I've journaled. Um, but to be more specific and be a little bit less facetious, 
I began thinking about trying to put a book together when actually I was first putting my um, my second blog, which uh, is an old blog called The Monster in Your Head. And this predates Reboot the Company by a couple of years. And uh, I toyed with that as a theme for a long time. And I remember even talking about doing something on the notion of standing still. But it really wasn't until Hollis Heimbach from HarperCollins emailed me. And I had been in conversation with a couple of different publishers that all of a sudden it went from this, wouldn't it be nice, it's kind of interesting, oh my God, it's terrifying to consider, to holy mackerel, I'm actually going to get a contract. And then I panicked, right? Because then I actually had a deliverable I had to go to, so. For readers of the book, what do you hope they would take from the journaling experiences that you prompt them in the book if they're new to journaling or um, what do you feel could be valuable from writing down their thoughts as they read the novel? Oh, that's a great question. So um, journaling isn't the only way to do what I'm about to describe, but I have found it to be an incredibly helpful uh, way. And what I do in my journaling it, it feels more akin to processing than it does to a kind of maintaining a diary. You know, dear diary, yesterday I went for a walk in the park. It, that's not the experience. More often than not, if I'm reviewing the past day or so, uh, it's through the lens of what am I experiencing? And uh, and so for me, it's it's a tool... I've come to see my morning journal time and my morning meditation time as one big two-hour window of mindfulness, one big time period of real quiet where it's an opportunity for me to just really answer that question, those core questions in your, our lives. How am I feeling right now? What's going on? Now, back to the book for a moment, the journaling prompts, the journaling invitations, uh, every chapter ends with a series of questions. And the reason I, I put that together was that I'm quite aware that when I was putting the book together, there was a kind of memoir piece and there's uh, stories, composite stories from the lives of my clients. And each of those is really positioned as a source of information, a source of uh, exploration. And the idea of adding the questions, which actually came to me at the very end of the manuscript, um, came about when I asked myself a very simple question, which was, okay, now that I've told this story, for example, my relationship to money and how important my grandfather's sense of well-being was for me as it relates to money, what is it that I want the reader to think about in that moment? Um, and so I, I then wrote a series of questions really as prompts for people to think about. And I guess what was going on there was that I've always had a uh, deep and profound relationship with text, with the, with the words in a book. If you follow the path of books that I have read, it'll be quite annoying because many of them are just like, I actually get engage, you know, and I'll write <laughs> in the margins, you know, no, this is wrong or, oh, I never thought of that. Um, and because I think that that kind of 
tussling and working with the text is another form of that kind of radical self-inquiry. It's another form of dialogue that is going on. And so that was really the, the impetus behind um, those journaling questions. On the note of radical self-inquiry, what makes it radical? I think it's radical because we actually don't do it often. And more, I think we're socialized to somehow associate inquiring within with a kind of narcissism, um, a self-indulgent navel-gazing. In fact, I've heard that term time and time again. Uh, either from clients or even folks who might criticize the works that I that I've done, um, I laugh because uh, in response to that, because I think that what happens is, I think we're always we've always got an eye turned inward. We just pretend that that's not going on, and when that eye turned inward is working in the background, it actually disconnects us from the other person. Whereas if we allow ourselves the radical act of attending to ourselves for periods of the day, it enables us to then turn around and be much more present for the other person because we've paid attention to ourselves. Now we get to give that attention to something else. Um, And I think it's radical, lastly, because um, it can be scary to look inward. How can leaders or readers of the book um, stay open in the face of uncertainty, looking at themselves radically? You mean because when they look in, they might be afraid? Sure. How do they stand still? Mm, That's a powerful question. Um, Well, what comes to mind is a teaching, uh, which I don't reference in the book, but from one of my teachers whom I do reference in the book, Ani Pema Chodron. And in a book uh, called Comfortable with Uncertainty, she teaches about the desire to sit like a mountain in the midst of the hurricane. And that image came to mind when you were describing that. You're right. Um, I am so used to being able to just pause and, let's say, answer fully the question, how are you, that I can forget that that could be terrifying for people. And what I would say is, uh, if you can pause and sit still and stand still in that moment and say to yourself that whatever arises is acceptable because it's part of you, that whatever you're feeling, whatever you're hearing in that self-talk is uh, okay, then we'll sort of defang the monster in your head that comes up if you pause and sit still. This question that you offer a lot to readers is, how are you? Yeah. Another question that is kind of a Jerryism is, how am I complicit in creating conditions I say that I don't want? Can you just briefly speak to the power of that question and what you try to get folks to consider when you prompt that question? Yeah, it's another great question. Thank you for that. Um, First of all, to break down the question for a moment, I think it's really important. The word complicit is a little tongue in cheek when I use it in that way. 
in the sense that we often think of complicitness in something really terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has this other meaning, which is it's not me alone who's doing this. And that's important because when we ask ourselves to radically inquire within to how have I helped create these conditions, it's important to understand that we are alone are not responsible for those conditions. And the reason that that's important is that oftentimes, one of the reasons why it's so scary to look inward, one of the reasons why it's so scary to um, examine this, this question is that there's this whole other voice that will arise that says, see, you are this terrible person. Look what you've done with your life. And so I want to make a really important point here that the complicit means that you have been working with the forces, whether they be other people or whether other external forces. So you're not wholly responsible for that. The second thing I would say about that is it's equally important to recognize that the second half, the last half of that, the conditions I say I don't want, not the conditions I don't want. And the reason I make that distinction is because we often want things, but we say we don't want it. Meaning that there's this notion of a benefit, a secondary benefit that is derived uh, from the conditions or the, the situations that we're working with, which we shield our consciousness from. So for example, um, if I, like I was working with a new client last night and it was a first-time conversation. We were sort of exploring the possibility of working together. And at one point, I kind of asked a radically inquiring within question. And I said, uh, how long have you not felt safe? And she's in her 40s, and she just, there was this gasp. And she had to consider all of her life. And then I said, what would you have to give up that you actually value? Remember that old question, were you to, f- to feel safe? And what we got to was that there was a power that she had internalized that drove her to, to be ambitious. Because if she was safe, then that would mean she'd be relaxed. And if she was relaxed, that would mean she wasn't driven. If she wasn't driven, then it would mean that she was not achieving. And so by looking at those questions, not why have I been complicit, which can lead to negative self-criticism, but how, or rather, in what ways might I have been complicit? That's a softer, gentler framing of the question. And what benefits might have been derived from the helping to be complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want. That's the exploration. That's the invitation there. Can you speak a little bit to, um, in the introduction, you speak about the why of our lives yeah. versus the how. Yeah. What's the importance of changing the framing from why to how? Well, there's a very pragmatic answer to that, which is as much as it might be helpful in our business model to have a coach standing next to you every five minutes of the day, um, it's impossible. 
And so what we really want to do for all of us is to inculcate in ourselves our capacity to navigate difficult situations on our own. In order to do that, I can tell you how to navigate a difficult, fierce conversation with someone, or I can get you back in touch with your core values and your core belief systems, and perhaps even the core belief system that you have the capacity to answer that question yourself. And if I can get you in touch with that, then you don't need to know the how, because you get to create that how, moment to moment to moment. What is easily lost is an understanding of the instructions of step-by-step. What is not easily lost, once found, is the way to your heart. If you know your heart, then you'll know your way to the how. And what does it mean to lead from the place of your truest self? Well, I often will say things like, um, if you're frightened then say you're frightened. If you're confident, say you're confident. If you're frightened but confident, say you're frightened but confident. Um, So uh, the truest self is the self that contains all of the self, all the way down to your bones. Um, You know, as Rumi says in that wonderful poem, The Guest House, welcome it all in the meanness as well as the joy, the sadness as well as the happiness, the totality of it. The truest self is the whole self. Um, And when you lead from that whole self, uh, you may not have the answers to the how, but you can always pull together people in, in a joint capacity to answer the whys, the collective whys. In what way does work provide us the opportunity to consistently realign our inner and outer selves? Mm. I think that uh, the thing that's marvelous about work is that um, it's so dynamic. It's ever-changing. If it was static we could align ourselves once and be done. But because the conditions in which we work change, the people we work with uh, uh, go through their own changes. Um, They grow or they leave or they uh, go through their own challenges or the customers change or the market conditions change or or business size change or capital structure change. Everything is constantly in this dynamic motion very lively. Because of that, we're presented with this opportunity to realign and realign and realign and realign again and again and again and again. And I think that that is the, uh, that's the opportunity. And every single one of those alignments presents us with an opportunity to check ourselves. And so we can ask some of the questions I ask Uh, are things like, what do I believe to be true about the world? Uh, What kind of company do I want to work for? Well, imagine asking that question, I don't know, every three or four months. Because the company that I thought I wanted to work for six months ago has now changed. And so it's this opportunity to come back to it. Um, 
if I can go a little further on that, I love the notion of the word practice. We don't say, I'm going to have my yoga practice and then get it right. I got all the asanas done. I don't have to do them again. Or I'm not going to sit in meditation because I sat <laughs> in meditation yesterday and I got it right. I'm done. Right? It's this practice. Um, and, and along with the notion implicit in your question, I would suggest that there is, a, there is an opportunity to think of leadership as practice. And the to what end becomes the full actualization of the adult, right? Not necessarily the successful exit from your company, right? Um, it's, it's this constant alignment of growth. It's the, con the alignment towards growth, the alignment towards growth. That's the practice. It's uh, the work of our lives, right? It's, it's the, the work of our lives. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Those are all the questions I have written. Is there anything? Well, the one thing that I think might be helpful is it goes to the why of why I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. And I can't help it. I'll, I'll, I'll make a reference to my friend, Crystal. Um, Crystal, I, I met um, about a year ago and um, ended up coming to one of our boot camps. And I remember... Um, meeting with her and just having these long into the night conversations. We were at a retreat together and, and we ended up talking about our mothers and our past and all this stuff. And uh, our worlds could not be more different, right? She works in law enforcement and it's just a very different world. And a few months ago, um, I sent her a copy of the galley. And one day she sent me a text message of her copy of the galley with all these little sticky notes and post-it notes in it with every page marked up. And, you know, as I said before, I was talking about, you know, how I have this relationship with the text. And what I saw was Crystal engaging with the text, engaging with the mar in the margins. And... So I have this vision um, of, of the books being out in the wild. And three or four years from now, when it's no longer on the bestseller list, my lips to God's ears, it would be on the bestseller list. But, but being realistic. And what's happening is somebody's in trouble and they're talking to a friend. And that friend reaches onto their bookshelf and hands them a dog-eared, marked-up, marginella notes written in and says, here, read this. Now, my publisher would want them to say, buy a new copy. <laughs> but, but, you know, that notion of, of the, the connection being passed, almost like a totem. Here, this helped me. Maybe this will help you. That's my wish. That this is, uh, you know, a long time ago, I, I thought of, the books that I've read in my life as pebbles on the path in the forest when I was lost. And I feel like I just put a pebble down on the path. So that's my wish. It's, uh, it makes me think that this book spans, it's 
whether you're a CEO of a company or you work at the post office or you work in law enforcement, these themes are human themes and they connect to the root of what we're all going through in our day-to-day experiences. I hope that's true. Um, So far, the folks who've read the book and have come back to me, they've kind of blown me away with with that. Mm. Um, Many people have said that and people that I did not expect, 20-year-olds, 70-year-olds, folks from all walks of life, um, coming back and saying there are universal truths in here. Um, What I will say about that is just this. I'm really good at condensing and editing great leaders' thoughts. <laughs> and I think I, I think that was my mission, was to, was to pass along what I've learned in that way. So, thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcasts to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. mean to build organizations of belonging? How can you build an organization safe enough for the whole human to show up at work? In Reboot's newest email course, we discover the hidden power and privilege that can pervade an organization and consider what is needed beyond the HR trends and into matters of the heart to create and sustain real places of belonging for all employees. Compiled and created by the Reboot team of coaches and facilitators, this course is a conversation around the question, How can you contribute to creating an inclusive culture of belonging? The course will unfold via a series of six emails full of content, one email per day over six days. And we hope by the end of the course, you have a sense on how you can relate to belonging to yourself, how you create belonging in your communities, work, home, and life. To learn more and to sign up for free, head to reboot.io slash inclusivity.